Good morning. It's good to be with you, and it's an honor to preach here. Brother Bill, thank you. Thank you for your friendship and your investment in our school in Southern and your faithful ministry here in Somerset. It's indeed an honor to open God's Word here this morning, so if you would, take out your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to spend our time in the first 10 verses of this chapter today. The title of my sermon is pretty simple. It's also the title of my book, but I'm not sharing that simply to get you to buy the book. I'd rather have you read the, the Word <laughs> revealed from God, but the title is Jesus or Nothing. And I wrote the book um, really as a result of this passage of Scripture. I was teaching at the University of Louisville in a ministry that I was the leader for and uh, called the Campus Church. We did three events to kind of announce that we were coming to campus when we started. We did one event called What I Hate About Religion. And we, it was a part of a, a book study, of a book that Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, had written. We wanted to let people know we weren't there just to make them more religious the second event we did was called What I've Learned from Atheism. We had Dr. Ted Cable, who is a former atheist, editor of the Apologetic Study Bible. We had him come share his testimony. And then the third event we did was called What I Love About the Gospel. And it was based on this passage of Scripture. But I really believe life boils down to these two options, Jesus or nothing. I believe that the only way you could have meaning and purpose in life is if God exists and if he's revealed himself in a way to give us peace and forgiveness. If Christianity is true, then we could have meaning and purpose and hope and forgiveness and life. And if it's false, then we simply live in a cosmos that doesn't care about us at all. It's Jesus or nothing. And I want to share, I hope, I pray that by God's goodness and favor this morning, a bit of the passion will come through that I also wrote that little book that came out of the sermon because I had so many friends who had become atheists that I grew up with. I also write, wrote it for my children as they grow older and think about and are enticed by secular philosophies and worldviews. I want to make the options crystal clear because I believe they are. I believe the only way you can have objective meaning and intrinsic worth and hope is in Jesus Christ. I believe there are other worldviews that borrow from the purpose of Christianity, that borrow from the morality of Christianity, that borrow from the worth of Christianity, but they can't give an objective foundation for those values. Only Christianity can reconcile our optimism with reality. Either we live in a world that doesn't care and we shouldn't have meaning and we shouldn't have purpose and we shouldn't have morals or we have all of these things because God is there and he is not silent. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for revealing yourself in the Holy Scriptures through the prophets. Thank you for revealing yourself in the New Testament through the apostles. Thank you for revealing yourself in flesh. God, we thank you this morning for the incarnation that you took on human flesh to do what Adam should have done. You were fully obedient to the Father. You conquered sin and death in the grave. God, I thank you that your Son has purchased our salvation. 
So we fix our eyes on Him. We pray that you'd help us to run our race with endurance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1904, G.K. Chesterton, a jolly, plump British journalist and Christian apologist, published a novel by the title of The Ball and the Cross. And the story begins with a, a Christian man walking through the city of London. It's his first time to visit the city. And he's walking down Fleet Street, which Fleet Street was an important street um, for writers and publishers and thinkers. It was actually, Fleet Street was to the literary world what Wall Street is to economics. Fleet Street was where the editors and publishers and authors spent all their time and people who wanted to be around them. And this man was walking down Fleet Street and he noticed one newspaper office and the title of the newspaper was The Atheist. And it caught his attention, him being a Christian man, he had never seen such blasphemy. He stopped at their large picture window where they had the most recent publication taped in the window, and he began reading it, and he, be, he became outraged. How could they write such blasphemy and publish it? In fact, he became so angry, he took his walking stick and he broke through the window. He jumped into the office through the window walked over to the editor's desk and jumped on top of the desk and demanded a fight. The editor, a little alarmed, was thrilled. And the reason he was thrilled is because hundreds of people walked by his office every day and they would just kind of nod their head and say, oh, that's the atheist. They publish an atheist newspaper and they write atheist things and they're always talking about their atheism and who really cares And everybody passed him by and paid little attention to what he said. But not this man. This man broke his window, jumped on top of his desk, and demanded a fight. So the atheist stood, was going to oblige his request, and the police came and intervened and arrested them both, took them to court, and the judge asked them both a very important question. He said, why would anyone, or asked rather, why would anyone be willing to stand and fight for such things. Why are you guys willing to be, why are you angry? Why are you willing to fight over such issues? The smooth-talking editor of The Atheist got the charges dropped. They left the courthouse, the Christian man, still furious, and he said to The Atheist, said, you're spineless. You have no conviction. The editor of The Atheist said, you have no idea. He said, I got the charges dropped so we could find a nice quiet place where we could fight each other to the death. And uh, the rest of the book is the story of how they're trying to find a nice, quiet place where they can have a good, old-fashioned, gentlemanly fight to the death. And every time they're about to fight, the police show up, and they have to run, and they're in hiding throughout the book. They get ready to fight. The police show up. They run off, and they go, and they find some other quiet place, and, and they're about to fight, and the police show up again. And by the end of the novel, they're best friends. They still want to kill each other. The novel ends with the two of them locked in an insane asylum. And G.K. Chesterton was making a very profound point, I believe, that the only two sane people on the planet were these two men who understood what they believed and were willing to stand for their convictions. The title of his book really tells the whole story, The Ball and the Cross, The ball represented the the universe, the cosmos, the the world. 
And the cross represented a worldview that points beyond itself towards a God who is there and points, points horizontally to how we could be connected to one another through God, how we could be reconciled to God and to others. The ball, on the other hand, only points inward, points in towards itself. I think Chesterton anticipated what the famous atheistic scientist Carl Sagan at Harvard University would say years later, only 33 years ago today or this year, I suppose. Carl Sagan began the documentary Cosmos, standing on this cliff with a beautiful ocean behind him, the camera zooming in on him at first and then backing out, and you see this beautiful uh, panoramic shot of the ocean behind him. And he made the statement, often quoted, the cosmos is all there is or ever was or ever will be. It's a worldview that points inward. The cosmos, if it's all there ever was or is or ever will be, then there's certainly no room for God. And you might think to yourself, that's exactly what an atheistic scientist from Harvard University probably would say. But if you were to come to my house and go into my basement to my children's book collection and pick up their copy of the Berenstein Bears Big Book of Nature, it begins with these words, nature is all there is or ever was, or ever will be. It's an atheistic worldview. It's not just for atheistic scientists at Harvard. It's even found in children's literature. If the cosmos is all there is or ever was or ever will be, then we live in a universe that doesn't care. You could stand on a, on a clear night and look up at the sky and look at the stars. They will never look down at you. You could sit there and look at the moon and think of the moon. It will never think of you. If there is no God and the universe is at bottom, impersonal and meaningless, then the world or the universe doesn't care about us. But if there's a God who's created all things, against whom we have rebelled, who has sent his son to reveal himself, if the gospel is true, then we can have meaning and purpose. It's either the ball or the cross. It's either Jesus or nothing. Paul writes in verse 1 of Colossians 2, and he describes a prayer he has for these young believers living in a very secular culture. He writes, verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who've not seen me face to face. Verse 2, well actually before we get to that, I should point out Paul uses the word struggle in chapter 2, verse 1, in the same way he uses it at the end of the book. He's describing prayer. Paul says, I have a struggle for you. And in the end of Colossians, Colossians 4, he talks about a struggle of prayer. This is what he's describing here. It's not a physical struggle, like a fight. He's not wrestling with flesh and blood, he tells us in Ephesians, but with powers and principalities. He says, he says, he's saying here, I am praying for you, and his prayer has three points, like a good Baptist sermon. The first point is this, in verse 2, he says, I'm praying that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Isn't that interesting? Paul begins praying that they would be encouraged. Now, I don't know about you, but I've made some bad decisions when I'm discouraged, in fact, it's just a good rule of thumb that you should never make any major decision when you're discouraged. 
We tend to not think clearly. And Paul begins by praying. The very first thing he prays for them is that their hearts would be encouraged. To illustrate this, let me point you to a recent survey or recent article that was published in The Atlantic by a gentleman who's become a friend of mine, a Christian apologist named Larry Taunton. He's based out of Birmingham, Alabama. He was close friends with Christopher Hitchens. They actually did a Bible study together the last year of Christopher Hitchens' life. Um, Larry moderated several debates that Christopher Hitchens was a part of. And Larry, after Christopher Hitchens died, if you don't know who Christopher Hitchens was, he was a well-known atheist author. He wrote the book, God is Not Great, um, became a U.S. citizen after September 11th to show, even as a British citizen, to show his solidarity with the United States, with the U.S. And Larry Taunton, after Christopher Hitchens' death, spent about a year traveling to secular campuses and talking to college students who had identified with atheistic organizations. And he would just say, you know, I just want to talk to you and ask you questions. I want to get to know your story. And that's exactly what he did. And after doing that for a year, he published an article with The Atlantic, which is not, if you're not familiar with them, it is not a bastion of Christian orthodoxy. It's a pretty liberal news outlet. And so the fact that he published there was itself making a point. He was wanting to have a real dialogue and not just publish it with Christianity Today or Baptist Press or something like that. And he had six observations about these young atheists he met with. In fact, the title of his article is simply Lessons Christians Can Learn from Younger Atheists. You might check it out. It's available online. It went viral shortly after he published it. He had six observations. I'll give them to you really quick of observations he had of talking with these young atheists, parts of free thinking societies or secular student societies, all these different names that essentially meant the same thing. They were students who didn't believe there was a God, and they believed that a religious worldview is an irrational one. The first observation he had was this. Every single one of them that he spoke with had a church background. In other words, these were not kids who grew up with atheist parents, never went to church. They all had a church background. Now, Larry says in his article, there were probably kids at these organizations who had no church background. He admits that. But he said, everyone that I spoke with, every single one, had a church background. Second observation was this, that when they talked about their church, that the mission and message of their church in these students' opinion was vague. When they talked about their church, the mission and message of their church, in their opinion, was vague. It was unclear. And we could respond to that by saying, well, that's just their opinion. Well, it is just their opinion, but they're also no longer in church and claim to be atheists. So we should listen to it. And as they went on and talked about that and illustrated it, it became more clear. You need to, I'll say more about that in just a moment, but you need to be thankful that you're at a church where the mission and the message of your church is crystal clear. Through the preaching of God's word and the faithful preaching of the gospel, it cannot be said accurately of young people in their college years, that they were a part of a church where the mission and message of their church was unclear. But know this, that's not most people's experience. You are indeed blessed, and we should give thanks for that. So these young people said, the church I went to, the mission and message of my church was vague. The third observation they had, when they asked serious questions, the third observation Larry had about them, when they asked serious questions, they felt like the church gave them superficial answers. When they asked serious questions, hard questions, questions they're being asked, 
they felt like the people, people in the church gave them only superficial answers. Fourth observation, Larry said when they would talk about someone from their church who actually knew their Bible and took it seriously, they had great respect for them. So they might describe their church experience as the mission and message being vague, but they would, for example, one young man who Larry calls Phil said, you know, I had a youth pastor and he taught the Bible and we studied scripture and he would let us ask any question, difficult questions about God, difficult questions about Christianity, Christian faith, difficult questions that we were hearing, and he would take time to respond. But he always pointed us to the Bible and he said, I really thought it was a great environment. I grew, I was encouraged. He said, but then at some point, our church, they wanted a larger youth group, and so they hired a younger youth pastor, and he came in, and he quit teaching the Bible to the extent that it was being taught before, and it seemed to be more about fun and games, and this one young man who was an atheist, whom Larry calls Phil, said, that's when I came to the realization, if the church doesn't take it seriously, then neither do I. I'm just not going to hang out for the pizza. So if they met someone who took their Bible seriously, they didn't ridicule them. It was the opposite. They had respect for them. Fifth observation, and this is the scary one. The ages 14 to 17 were the most decisive. The ages 14 to 17 were the most decisive. Here's what Larry said. He said, we think in the church that students are getting to college and becoming atheists. He said, not the ones I talked to. They became atheists sitting in the pew sitting in the youth camp, and they nod their head and go along with the music and go along with the games, but inside something was happening. As one of my friends likes to describe, he says that apostasy, which is a biblical word for renouncing the faith, apostasy works on a dimmer switch. It's a slow fade. Ages of 14 to 17 were critical final observation. Larry said every one of them described their rejection of Christianity in emotional categories. In other words, it was an emotional decision. It's not that they were convinced intellectually that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It's not that they had good evidence to suggest that the Bible's unreliable. It's not that they had evidence to prove God does not exist. They made, rather, they made an emotional decision decision, and they walked away from Jesus. Paul begins his prayer here by saying, I am praying, isn't that interesting, that you'll be encouraged. Let me encourage some of you who maybe have grandchildren, what would this church look like if you made your primary ministry a ministry of encouragement to young people? If it was important enough for Paul to begin his prayer by praying that they would be encouraged, what if you made your sole intent every time you walked through these doors or every time you saw someone from church out in the community that your prime ministry was to encourage them? Paul was struggling that they would be encouraged. What if we gave ourselves to encourage young people in the faith, to remove the things that discourage them and stand in the way of their growth? I should also draw attention to this. Look at how Paul described his prayer. I already mentioned it, but I want to say this. When was the last time you would describe your prayer with the word struggle? That's convicting for me. Paul is saying, look, I'm praying for you, and the only way he could describe it is to use this word, struggle. When was the last time that your prayer, your time of prayer, 
could really only be described as a struggle. The second point of his prayer, he prays that they be encouraged. Second, that their hearts would be knit together in love. Now, this is kind of an illustration that's lost on a younger generation. I remember growing up seeing my mom knit. I was in the airport recently, and the lady sitting next to me was knitting. But I I would imagine there are probably a lot of young people who don't exactly know what it is to to knit. The, The picture here Paul has is that their lives would be so interwoven that the best word to describe that is the word knit. Their hearts are knit together. Now, some of you would describe your relationships in this room right now in that very way. You've maybe lost a child. Somebody in this room wept with you and prayed with you, and God knit your hearts together. Maybe you faced an illness yourself, or maybe you lost your job, or maybe you're just struggling with so many things, as Pastor Bill talked about. You're in the storm, and in the midst of the storm, you've prayed together, you've wept together, you've struggled with God together, and God's knit your heart together. See, Paul's showing us that the best defense against the secular challenges of our day is for our hearts to simply be knit together to one another, and that's where we find encouragement. The third part of his prayer, if you look at the end of this verse, Paul says that their hearts would be knit together in love to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If I were to summarize that as simply as I can, Paul prays that their hearts would be encouraged, that their hearts would be knit together in love, and that they would never get over the gospel. Paul says, I want you to see how amazing God's wisdom is in Christ. The best antidote for apostasy from the gospel is ironically the gospel. The gospel, as I mentioned earlier, please know, church, that the gospel will not be found wanting at the end of history. We are not going to get to the end of history and realize that the gospel had deficiencies. There will be many worldly philosophies that will be seen for being as foolish as they really are, but God will not be found to be a liar in the end of history. Let all men be found liars and God be proven faithful. The gospel can stand up to any challenge of the day. The gospel's not afraid of Darwinian evolution. The gospel's not afraid of the homosexual agenda. The gospel's not afraid of the encroaching secularism that we see all over our world today. The gospel can stand up to the test. As the Apostle Paul said, it is the power of God unto salvation, and of this may we never be ashamed. So Paul says, I want you to see how great the gospel is. I'm praying that your hearts will be encouraged, that they'll be knit together in love, and that you'll never get over the gospel. And then Paul says in verse 4, he gives them what I describe, would describe as his thesis statement. I'm a professor, so I have to use academic terms, right? So, But you probably wrote a thesis statement even in high school. A thesis statement is just that short statement that summarizes what you're attempting to prove or defend. It just summarizes what you're hoping to do in the longer body of work. You know, So my thesis statement would be, this is my goal in this chapter of a book, or my goal in an article, or my goal in a paper. Paul gives us his thesis statement, 
of what he's trying to do under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this short letter written to young believers in a secular context. Here's his thesis. I say this, I'm writing this, I've prayed this, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The purpose of Paul's prayer in immediate context, the purpose of Paul's writing in Colossians in broader context, is to prepare these young believers so that they are not deluded by plausible arguments. Recognize two things. Recognize both what Paul does say and what he doesn't say. Here's what Paul doesn't say in verse 4. Paul doesn't say, I've written this because there are some people out there who don't believe in God, and man, are they stupid. (laughs) That's not what he says. Paul doesn't say here, you know, there's Professor Blabbermouth down the street at the prestigious Ivy League school, and that guy's crazy. Paul actually says their arguments are plausible. Some translations actually use the word persuasive. Plausible, persuasive. Simply what plausible means is it could be true. It sounds rational. It sounds logical. It sounds well thought out, perhaps well researched, well articulated. It's winsome and compelling. I remember growing up and I always heard that, you know, the picture I had in my mind, if I ever met a real atheist, was that they wear all black and they paint their fingernails black and they listen to Marilyn Manson and smoke marijuana. I have this vision of what it would be like to meet someone who really doesn't believe in God. You know, that's all fun and games until you meet someone who's winsome and compassionate and smart and they simply find belief in God to be irrational. And if you've grown up with this false view of what somebody looks like who doesn't believe in God, when you meet someone who defies all the stereotypes, who's fair in the way they talk about others' views, who presents a rational and persuasive argument, your faith could be diluted. So Paul doesn't, is not condescending. He doesn't dismiss them. He says, actually, you're going to hear things, and they're going to make sense, and they're going to sound compelling. And Paul says, if you're not prepared your faith will be diluted. How often do we see this? He doesn't say their arguments are right. He simply says that they make sense. They're not dismissed right out of hand. We have to work through them. But we recognize that the ultimate standard for evaluating um, alternative truth claims is the gospel. I want to share with you really quickly three contemporary plausible arguments. And so I need to move through them rather quickly. But these are three arguments that in our day are wielded about freely. And if our students or even you are not thinking critically, they may sound like they actually have more substance than they really do. Here's the first view, and it's not a word you would expect to hear on church and in church on a Sunday morning, and it's the view of panspermia. I won't have us all say that corporately together. Kind of a weird word. It's a philosophy that simply means, in fact, the champion of it was Francis Crick, who was the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA. Brilliant guy. But he championed this view known as panspermia, and it's a view that tries to explain why our universe seems to be so complex, why it seems to be designed. Francis Crick, who was an atheist, tried to 
explained it from his worldview, and he, he suggested, he said, what if out there in the universe there are highly evolved creatures, much more evolved than we are, and what if they actually sowed seeds of design, either directly or indirectly, into our universe, and that's why there's design. It looks designed so highly evolved life forms are responsible. You may have caught on, highly evolved life forms are exactly what you think they are. They're aliens. So this brilliant Nobel Prize winning scientist said, how do we describe the design in the universe? Aliens, perhaps. You might be sitting there thinking, that's crazy. But you realize even this last summer, there were at least two movies that I was aware of that were based on the philosophy of panspermia. If you're a fan of the Indiana Jones, I know he didn't come out with a movie this last summer, but some older movies, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, is permeated with the philosophy that life on our planet is a result of aliens. The movie Knowing with Nicolas Cage that is all about the, uh, this young girl discovering that there was going to be, a, or young boy, I think, discovering that the earth was going to come to an end. And the movie ends with Nicolas Cage walking in. Nicolas Cage, who's not a believer in God, he walks into his dad, who's a, a minister. And his dad's gathered there with their family. And he turns to Nicholas and he says, this isn't the end. This isn't what the Bible says, how it's going to end. And Nicolas Cage walks up and kind of lovingly just joins in with them. And as they join together, um, standing there in a circle, you see the flames coming down the street to devour them. And it was the end. There's a man standing in New York City holding up a, a billboard or a poster. This has John 3.16 written on it, and it's, he's melted away by this natural destruction. But right before the sun consumes all the life on the planet, UFOs land. They pick up Nicolas Cage's son. They pick up a young girl, and they drop them off on a new planet. The final scene is this young boy and young girl running off through wheat fields, both carrying a rabbit as a symbol of what they're put there to do, and out in the distance is a tree of life. You say that sounds crazy, and yet it it's permeates popular culture. Here's the second common thing we hear about in our day, and it's called multiverse. This is a plausible argument that's used against Christianity often, although it's not, I'll try and give you a Reader's Digest version. I quoted Carl Sagan from the documentary Cosmos. Well, just last year, they actually did a remake of that documentary, and they had a new one with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And in the opening scenes of the new documentary, Neil deGrasse Tyson said, we need to be critical of everything, which is a good um, admonishment. We shouldn't believe everything. We should have a critical mind. And he said, we should only follow the evidence. We should only go wherever the evidence will take us. But then in every single episode that I watched, he promoted a view known as multiverse. Very interesting. Here's the idea of multiverse in a nutshell. How could we have a universe that allows for a planet, that allows for human life? It seems so odd. As one physicist said, he said, it seems like a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics. A skeptic said that. Well, multiverse is the view that beyond our universe are billions of universes, and over time they give birth to new universes and pass off the, the good traits 
And then that universe gives birth to another universe. It's cosmic evolution. And eventually, pop, you have our universe. And so if you had billions and billions of universes, the fact that we're in a universe that allows for a planet, that allows for thinking, breathing people, isn't that big of a deal. Consider the multiverse. So Neil deGrasse Tyson, who in the very opening episode said, only follow the evidence, presented week after week after week a theory for which we have zero physical evidence. Paul was saying, I want you to be prepared so that your faith is not diluted by these plausible arguments. Francis Crick, a brilliant scientist, promoted a theory for which we have zero physical evidence. Here's the third one. I'll give it to you really quick. A really articulate, smart, theoretical physicist I don't claim to know much about theoretical physics, but he's a theoretical physicist named Lawrence Krauss, published a book called A Universe from Nothing, in which he said that the universe came into being from nothing at all. Another atheist named David Alberts, Lawrence Krauss, who wrote the book, is an atheist, but another atheist who teaches philosophy at Columbia University by the name of David Alberts wrote a response in the New York Times book review. So David Alberts wrote a response. David, who's an atheist, wrote a response of Lawrence Krauss's book, who's also an atheist. And he said, Lawrence, the, the only problem with your book is that it's wrong. He said, but I do have three points of critique. Here's the first point of critique. He said, Lawrence, when you say nothing, when you say the universe came from nothing, he said, you don't mean nothing. You mean something. And he said, in philosophy, it's known as equivocation. He's, he's changing the, the terms and definitions. Lawrence Krauss, in his public talks, will define nothing as a bubbling, broiling brew of virtual particles. See, Baptist preachers aren't the only ones who like alliteration. Um, a bubbling, broiling brew of virtual particles. I sat down with a skeptic friend one time, and we were having coffee, and he said, well, we know the universe came from Nothing, or from very little. And I said, okay, which one is it? And that's exactly what Lawrence Krauss does in his book. He talks about the nothing, but it's a bubbling, broiling brew of virtual particles. If the universe did come from that, he still hasn't described where the bubbling, broiling brew of virtual particles came from. So the title of his book should not have been A Universe from Nothing. The title of his book should have been A Universe from... Yeah, something, a bubbling, broiling brew of virtual particles, a universe from something to which the New York Times book review would have been, duh. We expected that all along. Here's the second point of critique he had about his book. David Alberts, atheist critiquing Lawrence Krauss, who published the book, A Universe from Nothing. He said, Lawrence, not only do you call it nothing when it is something, you never describe where the physical laws that govern the bubbling, broiling brew of virtual particles, you never describe where those laws come from. These intelligible laws that govern the universe, laws like gravity, you never talk about where they come from. And Lawrence Krauss, in one of his footnotes, simply says, we must assume the physical laws. So the title of his book should not be A Universe from Nothing, it should be a universe from something that's guided by intelligible laws that I have no idea where they came from. That'd be a really long book title. Here's the third point of critique. David Alberts, who's an atheist, says to Lawrence Krauss, says, Lawrence, what disappoints me the most about your book 
is that it's really, let's be honest, an attack on Christianity disguised as scientific theory. Lawrence Krauss uses in his book 19 times the word plausible. It's plausible. It's plausible. It's plausible. Paul writes, I've written to you that you might not be deluded by plausible arguments. You might think that Paul is going to end this short passage with a negative tone. Woe is me. You're surrounded by plausible arguments. Hide your kids. Hide your wives. <laughs> Look what Paul does. Look at verse 4 again. I say this then in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Verse 5. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see the good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Spiritual flourishing can happen in the most secular of environments. I take students every year to Boston, Massachusetts, and we spend time at Harvard, MIT, and Boston University, and I have PhD students from every one of those campuses who love Jesus, talk to my students to let them know that you can be a believer and you can flourish in your faith in the most secular of environments. Paul says you're going to be surrounded by plausible arguments, but look how firm your faith is. Look at verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and abounding in thanksgiving. See to it, verse 8, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I want to close with a, a true story. I was sharing the gospel one time with a, a young man who was, his family was originally from Vietnam, and real quiet young man, and we made an appointment to sit down in a coffee shop on the campus of the University of Louisville. We get there, and he brought a friend with him. The young man, I, it was hard to get a word out of him. I was, I was laboring to get any response more than a yes or a no, but his friend, on the other hand, was loquacious, which is a big word for chatty. <laughs> his friend liked to talk. So I was trying to share the gospel with this young man, but his friend kept interrupting me. His friend was from a truly a secular home. His parents were not believers. He had not been raised in any religion. And I finally at one point gave up on the young man I went to talk to. He wasn't helping. I just turned all my attention to this guy. And so we were having a conversation. He asked all the questions, good questions that often skeptics will ask. They don't have easy answers, but they're great questions. And I think they're great answers for them. It's just not always as cut and dry as just handing someone a list with bullet-pointed you know, statements. But we were talking back and forth and about God's existence and the problem of evil. And he finally said, you know, Dan, he said, you have all these religions and I said, yeah, it's funny. It seems like we were, we were created to know something more than nature, doesn't it? You have all these people with, in fact, like 99% of the people who've ever lived and like 99% of the people breathing air right now are religious. And I would argue everybody's religious, even the, the atheists. I'll say a little bit about that tonight. But he said, you have all these religions. Why doesn't God just come down? And say, this is the one true way. My jaw hit the floor 
And I, I didn't want to respond too quick because I didn't want him to realize he had just thrown me a softball, you know, and I was going to, um, and I didn't want him to think I didn't take his question seriously. So I paused for a moment, but before I could respond, this young, quiet man goes, duh, Jesus. And I said, yeah, what he said. <laughs> that young man, not the skeptic, but that young man, a couple weeks later gave his life to Jesus Christ, was baptized at our church. You know, if Jesus really has come, then we can have life and forgiveness and meaning and purpose. But if he hasn't, we live in a universe that doesn't care. But I'm so thankful that what I love about the gospel most is that it's true. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. God, we are unworthy recipients of news that is so good. And it's so good because it's true. God, I thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in you will not perish, but have everlasting life. God, I pray for everyone here today. If there's someone who's struggling with doubt, there's somebody who maybe is a skeptic and they're considering Christianity, God, I pray that today they would see the gospel clearly. They would see their alternatives very clearly. And I pray that your spirit would do a work that my words cannot do. I pray that your spirit would open the eyes of their heart, that they would in this very moment see the significance of the gospel, that you, the creator, have entered your creation to die in our place to give us life. Lord, I pray that there might be someone here today who's converted, someone today who would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. God, I pray that you would do the work only you can do. For parents and grandparents who are heartbroken over decisions that their children or grandchildren have made, perhaps even walking away from the faith, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them today that the gospel they've preached, that they've clung to all these years, is still enough to save their son and daughter. It's enough to save their grandchildren. And we pray for these wandering souls that you would help them to return to that instruction they received as they were children. God, I pray that even in this moment, wherever these children or grandchildren are, that you would place someone there to remind them of the gospel and to point them to you. And God, on behalf of all of us who know you today, I'm thankful that you take wanderers with arms wide open So I pray if there's a prodigal here today that we would run into your open arms. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.